everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 50. Today, I'm talking mahogany or mahoganies. Basically, the mahoganies. It's probably the most overused marketing term in the hardwood lumber business. Everything seems to be mahogany, but is it really? Not so much. So yeah, we're going to dive into that. But I do want to say thank you again, as always, to all of my new patrons, all the patrons who continue to sponsor this show, who send in questions, who give me great ideas for show topics, who just send me little messages saying, hey, I really enjoyed that show. It means a lot, guys. Always, always, always appreciate it. Thank you so much for supporting this show. And if you want to be one of the cool kids and support the Lumber Industry Update, you can go to patreon.com slash lumberupdate and everything you need to know is there. Enough of that. Enough of the shilling stuff. Let's let's get on with the show. A little bit of uh, feedback from previous shows. Uh, last time I talked about the uh, oaks that are starting to be felled for the Notre Dame Cathedral restoration. And Josh from Timber Woodcraft. You remember Josh? We interviewed him on episode some time ago. So Josh wrote in and he said, you know, I was curious. Someone wrote in asking how much the they, meaning the timbers, the white oak timbers, might dry in 12 to 18 months. I recently had a few orders to resaw some old heart pine beams that were installed in various buildings in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So just put this in perspective. These are heart pine beams that are 15 inches thick, and they've been around, they've, they've been felled for more than well, almost 200 years probably. So the old adage is it's dry if it's been cut for X amount of years. Well, the surface moisture on these beams was about 10%. Two inches into the beam, it was 13%. In the middle of the 15 inch thick beam, it was a solid 169 to 18% moisture. And these were 100 years air dried. To your point in the show regarding the French oak that they don't need to be dry to be suitable for this purpose, actually, they likely will never be, quote, dry to our modern idea of it, and they don't need to be. I think our limited experience with wet timber being mostly knowledge about treated four by fours is like comparing apples to oranges in this context. We know them to check, twist, and so on, but a slowly grown, straight-grained, and clear oak is a completely different timber than a pressure-treated white pine one. I think our assumption is it must be dry in 18 months to be stable, or it'll act like my fence posts, when in reality, these beams are going to be stable because of what they are, how they grew, and how they will be cut. Like you said, moisture lost in the 12 to 18 months might just be free water to prevent surface molding. Excellent point, Josh. One thing that I, I did not think to bring up, but yeah, you're right. The, the tree, the species will play a huge role, but we're so worried about the warping and checking and craziness that we see like in our fence posts or shingles or, or various other outdoor structures. This is not the same beast. This is very old, very slow growing. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, cultivated, curated to be long beams. These were originally planted for naval purposes. Then it became clear that that wasn't going to be important and they were listed as a um, protected species specifically for restoration of historic monuments. In part of the disaster recovery plan for the city of Paris, they were earmarked that way and they were continued silviculturally to be grown and pruned 
for this purpose. This is super straight grain stuff. It has zero knots. Maybe if they do, they're very, very small pin knots because it was grown that way. This was grown to be huge, long timbers. It's a very, very different beast. It also goes to show you how silviculturally we can actually grow our trees for specific purposes. And it's still done today. Two by fours are grown to be two by fours. In fact, I've got an episode on this when I talk about two by fours not being made the way they used to be. Well, no, on purpose, they're not made uh, grown that way anymore. So excellent point, Josh. Thank you for chiming in on that. Now, here's a fun one from Wilbur Pan. He says, I really enjoyed uh, the last lumber update on bows. The discussion on wood properties and elasticity got me thinking about Japanese planes. Go figure. If you know Wilbur, he probably never stops thinking about Japanese planes. As you know, Japanese planes are made from Japanese oak, which is not common here in North America. For what I've been able to figure out, the main properties that make Japanese oak the preferred wood for Japanese planes is the ability of the wood to compress as you tap the blade down and its ability to spring back to its original form as you back the blade out. This sounds a lot like elasticity, but in this case, the bending is due to compression and is at more of an angle to the grain than perpendicular to the grain, like bending a bow. So what technical property should I be looking at that makes Japanese oak so special? This is fantastic. And and I've been preaching this whole idea of understanding the technical properties to figure out how a certain wood or why a certain wood is good for things and therefore what other species of wood could be good for that as well. So I started digging a little bit and I started looking up Japanese oak. Um, That's Quercus mongolica. it is, it's very similar to white oak, Quercus alba, but uh, Japanese oak, it grows very slow. Um, so it's got a very dense growth ring structure. And here's a little, just a, a common fact about hardwoods. The slower growing, the tighter the growth rings, actually the weaker the tree is. And this is something that a lot of people don't think about. There's this prized old growth material. Well, the faster grown stuff actually is stronger because you've got a wider spacing of early and late growth. And in the early growth, when you've got larger pores, because the the tree is actually growing faster, it's sucking up a lot more moisture, the pores are wider open. When you've got really closely packed growth rings, you've got closer packed wide open pores, Uh, a greater... um, occurrence of pores and therefore a lower density. Now, this is actually the opposite in softwoods, and I may get to that in a future episode at some point. But to the point here, because Japanese oak grows so much slower than like North American white oak, you're going to find a slightly different, you should find a different density. So when I start looking at Japanese oak and looking at uh, American white oak, I do see a specific gravity dense or difference, um, about uh, 0.68 for Japanese oak and 0.6 for white oak. Now that may not sound like a lot, but when you think about most of the wood species fall anywhere from 0.5 to like 0.7, like all of them seem to fit in that range. So that 0.08 difference is kind of a big deal. And that may have some of this. Now here's the other thing we're talking about. Um, And this actually brings up, I had several people who wrote in um, just 
commenting on the Bowood episode, several Boyer, uh, Boyers, 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 who wrote in saying, you know, spot on, that was great. Um, but also a lot of them said you were talking about elect- uh, bending strength and elasticity. And in the bow world, we talk about compression and stretching, and that that's particularly key. In the wood science world, when you talk compression, we're talking about a force along the grain. In other words, on the ingrain itself. So there is a technical property called crushing strength and max crushing strength. That's referring to if you took a board and you stood it on end, so the end grade's on the ground and then the other end of the board is, is facing up, and you applied force directly onto the end grain along the long axis of that board, that is its compression or its crushing strength. Certainly compression in a general term from an from a engineering perspective has its own meaning, but in the hardwood world, compression and crushing, we tend to be talking along the end grain. So in Wilbur's instance, we've got uh, a force that's working kind of somewhere in between, right? It's on an angle. If you think of the bedding angle of a plane, you know, it's not side grain, nor is it in grain. It's somewhere in the middle. Well, we are still talking about elasticity because the, the beauty of it is you can, you can put the, um, the plane in, put the wedge, you drive that wedge and it causes some compression to kind of lock the blade in place. And the elasticity of the wood, in other words, pressing back up against the blade, forcing up against the blade and compressing against the wedge, or one might say the wedge compressing the blade into the body is causing that tension to hold the blade in place. Well, if you kept that blade set for a very, very long period of time, the blade, the, the wood itself, the body, the plane, the wedge, etc., might develop a bit of a memory and it wouldn't seat as well or you would have to drive the wedge a little bit deeper to get it to seat as well next time. The Japanese planes, the Japanese oak rather, is so superior because that elasticity is so strong that when you do unseat the wedge and the blade, the wood springs back to its original form. So you're not getting that necessarily having to drive the wedge deeper each time. So we are talking about modulus of rupture and a little bit of modulus elasticity here, but then we're also talking about crushing strength because we've got that ingrain that's in the mix, even though it's in that weird kind of 45 degree miter where it's not quite ingrain, it's not quite edge grain. So I think it's a mixture of stuff. And when we compare white oak to Japanese oak, we'll actually find that the elasticity of Japanese oak is a little bit lower than that of white oak. But we do find that the crushing strength of Japanese oak is higher than white oak by like a thousand foot pounds per square inch. So a lot higher, I should say. And I think there is the the magic sauce, if you will. I could be way off here. And if there are some Japanese plane makers out there that know, please write and let me know. But this is, this is kind of the point. I, I could be wrong, but let's look at the properties. Let's look at kind of the physics of what's going on. Let's look at the application and start thinking about what technical properties would this play in. And I think that's really the difference because structurally Japanese oak and white oak are very similar. The pore sizes are a little bit smaller in Japanese oak. They're grouped a little bit closer together that lower strength thing I was talking about. The density is a little bit lower because of the greater grouping of pores. But on the whole, pore size is not that much different. Both pores are filled with tylose, that kind of crystalline caulky stuff, which makes it a good exterior wood. Future episode there. And both have 
pretty high MOEs and MORs. There's some differences in there, but I don't know that that really is playing into it. I think what it comes down to is the ability of the ingrain to resist crushing of the fibers. As that wedge is pushing down, and we're really talking about a static force. It's dynamic as you're seating the wedge, but once the wedge is seated, it's a, it's a static force. And the elasticity, the ability to spring back has something to do with that, but more importantly, it's the ability of the cell walls, the ingrain, the fibers themselves to resist crushing. That constant compression that may help a memory develop and cause you to have to seat that wedge more, that strength of crushing, crushing strength is what's really the secret sauce here. It's substantially higher than, well, yeah, it's more than 10% higher in Japanese oak than it is in white oak. So Wilbur, I think that's your answer. Um, I'd be open to suggestions if anybody else can think of anything, but I think that's really the uh, the secret sauce. At least that's a few of the 11 secret herbs and spices on that one. Great question, Wilbur. Thank you so much for, for writing in. Always a pleasure to talk to you. So in industry news, and that's what's really inspiring this um, this episode, there has been an article that has made its rounds in the last couple of weeks. I've had it sent to me no fewer than 20 times, but it is a story about um, a stash of mahogany that is coming out of, oh shoot, I just forgot. Is it Wisconsin? Yeah, and in Madison, Wisconsin. There's a stash of mahogany that has been sitting around for quite some time that was originally put there for airplane propeller research. Um, if you don't know, a lot of propellers um, during World War II, even World War I, were made out of mahogany. Um, it, mahogany used to be the perfect pattern maker's wood as well. It's also genuine mahogany is very much known for its carving ability, the homogenous nature of the grain. It just It's fantastic for that. So when you're making patterns or if you're looking for something really, really stable yet lightweight for a propeller, it's perfect for that. Long story short, there was like a huge um, supply of the stuff that was set aside in this forest products laboratory in Madison, Wisconsin, specifically for propeller research, airplane propeller research. Well, kind of obsolete, <laughs> anachronistic, if you will. Um, and it's just been sitting there. So when damage occurred to the Capitol building in DC during those pro-Trump riots, we're not going to get into politics here, but let's just say some stuff was damaged. And I happen to work for a company that provided a lot of the lumber for the Capitol building and continues to supply lumber to the architect Capitol to this day for everything from Smithsonian to Capitol to um, Independence Hall to, well, Independence Hall's in Philly, but all the other projects going on in D.C., the architect of the Capitol is the, the various cabinet shops that fall under the architect of the Capitol are in charge of doing that restoration work. So they, they found some of this damage and realized, holy crap, like this is some old mahogany. Like we can't really get a clear match for this stuff. And turns out this forest products laboratory in um, Madison said, hey, we've got a 3,000 pound stack of mahogany over here that might just work for you. And sure enough, some of this stuff is Sweetina mahogany, colloquially known as Cuban mahogany. Um, and that's how long ago we're talking about when the Capitol was built. That was the stuff that, that my company, J. Gibson McIlvain, supplied to them was Sweetina Mahogany. Well, if you follow it at all, Sweetina Mahogany is now a CITES Appendix 1 listed species, and it, it can't 
you can't cut it, you can't fell it, you can't sell it. Um, there are some grandfather clauses that would apply in this particular instance. Um, but yeah, it's pretty cool that there's now this big stack that's been sitting around gathering dust that is going to be used to restore parts of the Capitol building. So I'm glad that um, a lot of people have sent me this um, this article. And, you know, it's actually got me thinking that I should probably get one of the architects of the Capitol uh, on this show at some point. So I've made a few phone calls, reached out to see if we can make that happen. So let's talk mahogany. Mahogany gets like attached onto everything as like a marketing term. Um, Brazilian mahogany, Santos mahogany, Sapili mahogany. Um, there's just mahogany has this kind of mystique about it. It was like the furniture of the golden age of the 18th century when all of the high boys and low boys and various desks and secretaries were all being made. It was all out of mahogany. Interesting side note. Um, once the colonies in North America got up and running, the really, really crazy sought after wood was American black walnut. And that actually ended up being more expensive than mahogany because mahogany is kind of like was old hat at that point. And this walnut was totally new. And that became what everybody wanted in Britain when they wanted um, furniture made over um, in Britain. They wanted the, the exotic black walnut. Technically, mahogany was exotic as well, but they'd been bringing in mahogany for years and years and years and years. You know, what was Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492? Yeah, that's when the mahogany started flowing. Moreover, mahogany-ish type wood had been flowing out of Africa since before there were colonies in North America. So yeah, granted those were not technically mahoganies, but today we look at species like African mahogany, sepili, utili, as mahoganies. They often get marketed as mahogany. They get called sapili mahogany or African mahogany. So let's kind of, let's talk about this. What exactly is mahogany? And, and earlier in this episode, I used the term genuine mahogany. In most of the hardwood industry, when you hear genuine mahogany, we're referring to sweetina macrophylla. That is, um, <sighs> See, it's also colloquially known as Honduran mahogany. Hasn't come out of Honduras in decades, folks. It's not coming out of Honduras right now at all. Most of the genuine mahogany these days is Central American, Brazilian, um, well, not so much Bolivian anymore because Bolivia thumbed their nose at CITES and now that stuff is all illegal. But it, it's South American mahogany. That's really where the Suetina macrophylla is coming from. Some outlying instances where it's actually grown in Fiji, the Fijian mahogany is Suetina macrophylla. The stuff is beautiful. Turns out the uh, Fijian climate is absolutely perfect for mahogany and botanists wonder why didn't it grow there on its own? Probably because it's a tiny little island in the South Pacific, but had some spores made it there, it would have grown naturally on its own. And now that it's been planted in Fiji by the British government 70 some years ago during the age of imperialism, it's flourishing. The problem with Fijian mahogany these days is the industry set up around it is still very, very young. So some of the kiln drying practices are not as good as they should be. So you have to be a little cautious about the quality control there. Also, the protection of that particular um, uh, uh, ecosystem is very, very important because obviously it's a very small island. So it has to be heavily, heavily regulated so that it doesn't denude the forest entirely. Getting off topic, but as you can see, mahogany can lead down a whole bunch of different rabbit holes. So let's talk 
taxonomy here. You know, go back to, to science class in sixth grade or seventh grade, whenever we learn this, you know. Um, shoot, can I remember it now? Um, kingdom, phylum, order, family, genus, species, or is it kingdom, order, phylum, family, genus, species? I don't remember. Um, what we're focusing on is the family, genus, and species. And above that in the taxonomy, it, it doesn't really matter that much. Um, but genuine mahogany, Sweetina is the genus, Macrophylla is the species. Sweetina mahogany, uh, with an I on the end instead of a Y, that's the Cuban mahogany. So Sweetina is the genus, and that's really the sweet spot. The species that you find in the Sweetina genus, that's that's the real mahoganies. That's the genuine mahoganies. There are three different species that kind of roll up under that. Again, we talked about the macrophylla. We've talked about um, mahogany, uh, sweetina mahogany, the Cuban mahogany. And then there, there's kind of a, a, a third one that gets thrown in there from time to time that just genuinely is known as Mexican mahogany. It's sweetina humilis. Um, I'm almost hesitant to bring it up because it's not really a factor. You're not going to find it very much. Um, it's a, it's a much, it's a species that isn't very widespread and it's also quite a bit smaller. So as a lumber producing tree, you're not going to find it that much and people aren't cutting it for that purpose because it's not yielding anything, but those are really, you know, the genuine mahoganies in that Sweetina genus. Well, as you go above taxonomically speaking, as you climb the ladder out of genus into family, uh, Sweetina mahogany, Sweetina macrophylla roll up under the Melisae family. And I may be saying that incorrectly. I didn't take Latin. So I'm just going to call it Melisae. Melisae? I don't know. Melisae is what I'm going to call it. And this is where things get really cloudy. And you see this in marketing language all the time. You know, this species of wood is in the mahogany family. You know, it's going to be just like mahogany. It's in the mahogany family. Well, taxonomically speaking, yes, it's in the Melisae family. But so are a couple thousand other species. And does that mean it's mahogany? Not so much. So when we're talking about the um, African mahoganies, those are in the Melisae species, but they're a different genus. So African mahogany is Kaya. That is the genus. Um, put a pin in that. I'm going to get back to, to African mahogany a little in a little bit. The other African mahogany type species, the really big ones are Sapili and Udali. Well, the interesting thing is those are actually... They're... <laughs> They're kind of their own, their own thing. They are, they are in the Melisae family, totally different genus. Entandrofragma is the genus. Entandrofragma cylindricum is Sapili. Entandrofragma utile is, is utile. Those are very, very close. Um, unless you deal with them a lot, you're going to have a hard time telling them apart. Personally, I prefer to work with utile over Sapili. Uh, Utile is a little bit softer, a little bit easier to work, and a little bit more homogenous in its grain pattern. Sapili is really known for the striking ribbon striping in the quarter sawn cut, but Sapili can be a little bit harder, a little bit more brittle, brittle, and it's very, very dusty when you're working, whether by hand or uh, with machines. It's very, very dusty. Utili just is a little bit more mellow in that respect, and it's about 200 pounds per square inch softer on the Janko hardness thing. So it's a, for me, from a hand tool perspective, I like working with Utili. Um, those both Sapili and Utili. Uh, Utili also is known as Sipo. 
yeah, I'm, I, I, this is getting confusing, I know, because everything has these different names. Sipili is often marketed as Sipili mahogany. Um, sometimes it's marketed as African mahogany. And technically, African mahogany is a different genus. It's in the Kaya genus. <laughs> so you can see the African mahoganies get thrown in to mahogany-like species or mahogany-like products. And yes, they are in the Melissae family. That's as close as they get to genuine mahogany. But then you've got like Southeast Asia, Philippine mahogany. <laughs> yeah, that's a fun one. Now, all of the Chris Craft boat owners out there have those, those lovely Philippine mahogany deck boards. That stuff doesn't exist anymore. Thank you so much to the Marcos regime for basically denuding the forests in, in the Philippines. I guess they had to buy shoes for Imelda. I'm not sure, but they took down like all of the real Philippine mahogany. When you think Chris Craft's boats... That's Philippine mahogany. If you don't know what a Chris Craft boat is, go watch Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. There's a part where Indy goes on a boat chase in Venice and the boat gets gobbled up by a propeller and the guy's head gets cut off by the propeller. That is a Chris Craft. Well, I don't know if it's actually a Chris Craft boat, but that's the type of boat we're talking about. Those Adirondack style boats with the beautiful mahogany decking. That is Philippine mahogany. And that is actually the Shoria genus, which is not in the Melisae family. So here we go. This is like a totally different beast altogether. I mean, when you when you remove yourself from three taxonomic layers and still say it's mahogany, it's not even close. The thing with the Sharia genus and Philippine mahogany, also Luan falls into this. If you bought like that reddish plywood at Home Depot, that's Luan plywood. Um, and aerobic can fall into this as well. It is... It's, it's a, it's very low density. Uh, it's got that kind of homogenous grain structure and the really good stuff, the, the real Philippine mahogany that you just can't get anymore. Um, and, and these days, if you look at Philippine mahogany taxonomically, it'll just say Sharia SPP, which really means varied species underneath it, because there are frankly a lot of different ones. Maranti, uh, Balau, Luan are all in the Sharia genus. Those are all Indonesian, Southeast Asian mahoganies. You will find them thrown around from time to time. Santos mahogany is another one, um, but Santos is kind of a even more different. That's really, really hard compared to like the Philippine mahoganies and the, the um, Balau's. Maranti as well, often found in marine grade plywood. That's another one. Macaray kind of comes up from time to time. These are all falling under that Sharia genus. And they get marketed as mahoganies more often than not. In this case, they get marketed as Philippine mahogany because Philippine mahogany got that um, great notoriety really in the 1950s for making Adirondack style boats. Hasn't been around. When was Marcos in power? Was that the 80s? Um, <laughs> I'm losing track of time here, but it's been gone since then. You know, we're talking multiple decades now that the Philippine mahogany, it's not extinct. It is endangered. It is recovering, but it's also at a point where it, it's just fallen out of favor and there's not enough of a market for it anymore. And it will recover because it doesn't have the pressure on it anymore. So I, I kind of bring up the Sharia genus because it does get thrown in. You do find it in plywood that like Luan, um, you will still find people asking for Philippine mahogany. They're asking for it because it's very lightweight. The density is quite, quite low. But the 
consistency is all over the place. The color can be like a dull brown to like a really, really deep red. Um, technically, Spanish cedar sometimes falls under this this kind of three parts removed type mahogany. Um, and some people will label Spanish cedar cigar wood, but they'll also call it some form of mahogany. Depending on whether it's plantation African Spanish cedar or South American Spanish cedar, it can sometimes be called South American mahogany. And again, it's not. It's not even in the Sharia genus. It's not in the Melissae family, but it still gets listed as a mahogany. Those are kind of the ones way on the outliers. The Philippines, the Shereans, the Macarays, the, the, the um, Spanish cedars, all those guys, they will get marketed as mahogany. But really, if you take a close look at it, you will see this is probably not. Something's fishy going on here. Something's rotten in this mahogany, and it's probably not the right stuff. It's the African species that have the biggest piece of the market at this point and compete most readily with the South American, the genuine species of mahogany. So let's tackle the African and then I'll wrap this up by talking about the genuine stuff. So um, first and foremost, African mahogany, the, the trade name African mahogany is referring to Kaya, the Kaya genus. And oftentimes when you look up African mahogany, you will find the same thing with Philippine mahogany where it just says Kaya SPP. Kaya is the perfect example of what we refer to as a conglomerate species. Kaya is very widespread throughout West Africa and Central Africa. Very, very widespread. Africa is a big continent, folks, and it grows on almost every corner of the African continent. But look at Africa from like the driest part outside of Antarctica in the Atacama Desert in Namibia to deep rainforests in the Congo to high mountain plateaus in Ethiopia. I mean, to, to the Sahara, right? I mean, all the way down to like South Africa and tropical rainforests and cliffs and such near Johannesburg. It's amazing mishmash of different climates, but this same species grows in all of them. I should say the same genus grows in all of them. And this is why it's a conglomerate species because Kaya anthoteca, Kaya grandifolia, Kaya ivorensis, uh, Kaya senegalensis, these are all species that get listed as African mahogany. And there's like 30 of them, folks, 30 of them, probably more than that. And because of that, they're growing all over the place. Um, Kaya ivorensis is an example of kind of a prime, the best quality um, African mahogany. As the name might indicate, it's from the Ivory Coast, ivorensis. Senegalensis from Senegal is another um, of the prime top quality examples of African mahogany. Kaya anthoteca, on the other hand, it's crap, <laughs> if you ask me. But it gets lumped in. Kaya grandifolio is another one. The density is totally different than ivorensis. The interlocked green pattern that African mahogany is often known for giving that kind of ribbon stripe look. The grandifolia and the anthoteca is all over the place. Whereas Kaya ivorensis, while it's still interlocked, it's much more regular, similar to like what you would find with Sapelia, where you get that very strong parallel striping in the quarter sawn. Uh, Kaya ivorensis will do the same. Plus, the density is very much homogenous throughout. You look at the density in Anthoteca and Grandifolia, you'll find really, 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 really hard in those darker bands and the ribbon stripes and really, really low density in the lighter stuff, like Western red cedar density. And it makes it really prone to tear out. 
as those blades go from hard to soft, it rips it all to shreds. Um, oftentimes, Chianthoteca and Grandifolia and some of the others, they get sold as paint grade wood because it's just impossible to get a smooth surface on it without sanding and sanding and sanding and sanding. But when you import, say, a shipping container of, of African mahogany, you can't say, I want Kaya Ivorensis. You get a shipping container of African mahogany. And in that container, maybe 20, 15 different species. And they're not labeled. <laughs> they're not even, the ends aren't even sealed and painted a different color. It's all the same. And as you sort through those boards, you go, oh, this is crap. This is nice. This is nice. Crap, 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 et cetera. And it's a real pain in the you know what to deal with this. Um, my company and, and several others that have been importing African mahoganies for many, many years have built relationships with sawmills and, and, you know, the quality standards are there that we, when we import, we're getting like 90% of our materials, Ivorensis or Senegalensis. Um, and our graders are, have been seeing it long enough that we can grade out the, the bad stuff. I mean, there's going to be a certain amount of waste in every shipping container that comes in. You can't get all hundred percent perfect stuff just doesn't work that way. Folks, wood's organic. There's going to be weird stuff in there. So the good yards will pull that stuff for defect and they will sell African mahogany if it's meant to be a stain grade material for exterior work or something like that, we will push the Ivorensis and the Senegalensis stuff. If we have a customer coming for us looking for a good exterior rot resistant species that they're just going to end up painting, that's a great opportunity to, to move the Anthotec and the Grandifolia. And, and we're very clear in saying, hey, it's all African mahogany, but this stuff is going to be better for paint grade. And oftentimes we can sell a little bit cheaper because the grade just doesn't meet that of, of the Ivorensis. Ivorensis is really the gold standard, I think, of African mahogany. You talk to 10 woodworkers about African mahogany. Two of them will say, I love it. The other eight will say, this stuff is crap. It's devil weed. I hate it. It tears out like crazy. The two that love it probably work with Ivorensis. The others got something else, or they may have gotten Ivorensis on one board and Anthoteca on the next board. So they're making rails and styles, and they've got these two styles that are gorgeous, and the rails just go to hell um, because it's a totally different species. But it's all labeled the same. It's all on the same rack at the lumberyard, and it's incredibly frustrating to people because of that conglomerate nature of the species. There are, as I said, a lot more species that roll up under this, many that I wouldn't even be able to identify, I've never even heard of, but that guarantee we probably have some at the lumberyard where I work because it's just the way the stuff is shipped in. You get 10,000 board feet of African mahogany, <laughs> it could all be different species. Count on it being different species. So the issue with African mahogany is that consistency from board to board. Moreover, consistency within the same board, if you've got a lower quality of, of African mahogany, the Anthoteca is one that's going to grow. Um, let me back up. The Ivorensis, the Senegalensis, those are growing in nice rainforests. They've got a consistent growth pattern uh, throughout the year, like you find in a lot of tropical woods. Anthoteca is going to have that more starve and feast thing where it's kind of in the Sahel region where you don't have the deep tropical rains. You've got some drier climate mixing in throughout its geographic um, distribution. So you're going to have more differences between the early and the late growth that, that, summer rain or that monsoon rain is going to cause a nice, um, uh, consistent density through that growth. But then the drought that follows is going to be really spotty and you're going to get that dramatic density difference. You're also going to get, um, 
in the drier areas, the wood is a lot twistier as it's trying to conserve moisture. Um, you think about any tree that grows in a desert climate, they're often very gnarled and twisty looking. It's a way that the tree can help conserve moisture. Well, you find that, and if you find that really gnarly looking, crazy grain African mahogany, you're dealing with an African mahogany that's coming from a drier, more arid climate. I just, it's redundant. Drier, arid climate, it's the same thing. But you get the point. Getting a species from the Ivory Coast that's all tropical rainforest, Kai ivorensis, it's going to be much more homogenous. In fact, much more similar to genuine mahogany. The prized genuine mahogany that's so wonderful for carving and working because it's just this cuts like butter because it grows consistently 12 months out of the year. You don't have a dry spell and a really, really wet spell. You have pretty much the same amount of moisture, same amount of nutrients throughout the year, making a very homogenous, very little difference between early and late growth. In fact, there is no early and late growth evidence in genuine mahogany. So then we come to the sapiles and sapiles, the sapili and utile. Those two, the intandrophragma genus are great alternatives to mahogany and actually have taken a grander market share for the reddish wood market, that that mahogany market. Uh, genuine mahogany is CITES listed, has been since 2008, something like that, relatively recently. Um, really, really when CITES, uh, or, or rather when Lacey turned its attention to um, lumber, 2008 or 2009, I believe, uh, mahogany was CITES listed shortly after that. So it's been heavily regulated for more than a decade now, and the market share has gone down just because there's not as much available. Still a lot of people making mahogany-type furniture, mahogany-type interiors. It's fantastic for exterior trim. And Sapili has really taken the market share of that. Sapili is an enormous tree. Um, Think of like the giant baobab trees in Africa. Sapili is not quite that big, but it's big. It's a buttress tree like genuine mahogany. So you get these massive bowls. So what it means is Sapili can come in great thicknesses and great width. More often than not, the Sapili that we get in North America is cut down to typical North American sizes. It's all, it all starts as 40, 50, 60 inch wide slabs that are then ripped into sizes that have more of a market share in North America. So if you go to your, your lumber dealer and it's all six and eight inch wide sapili and you think, oh man, the sapili is not very wide. That's not the case at all. Um, <laughs> sapili is incredibly wide. If you specifically want 24 and 30 inch wide lumber, sapili is a good choice for that, but you're going to have to probably pick a special order for that because there's not as much of a market for 24 inch, 30 inch wide material. And the sawmills in Africa are ripping it into narrower pieces. The Lacey Act says there's a certain amount of work that needs to be done in country. So the sawmills will rip it into more traditional board sizes. That's the percentage of work being done, making it Lacey compliant when it comes over here. If you want a wider board, you can still do that, but it kind of has to be special ordered. We've brought in 48, 55 inch wide sapili slabs before for special orders. It's not hard to get. It's just a matter of letting the sawmill know, hey, don't rip that down to a narrower size. Utili is the same way. Utili is not quite widespread as sapili, but it's still pretty much everywhere. The good stuff is coming pretty much from the same areas that African mahogany is coming from. So there are flourishing and strongly sustainable 
and and verified third party verified concessions in these areas that you're getting really good sustainably grown and harvested sapili, udali, and African mahogany, all kind of coming from the same area. The interesting thing, though, is sapili and udali have taken such a grand market share that African mahogany has started to fall off dramatically to the point where the the quality difference between sapili, udali, and then the, the quality difference, I should say, with just lumping sapili and udali together as one versus the African mahogany is so wide. The sapili and udali are so much better than African that the African prices have been continued to drive down. That kaya is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to the point where no one wants to cut it anymore because you can't make any money off of it. It's not worth the time to go out into the forest, fell the tree and bring it back and make a penny per board foot on it. So African mahogany is starting to running into shortages as Sapili and Udali get used more and more and more in the commercial sector. They are both really good species, both meaning Sapili and Udali are great species, really hard, uh, very dense, great consistency of color, that great ribbon stripe look you get in both Udali and Sapili, more pronounced in Sapili on the quarter sawn, plus because the tree is so big, you can get wide quarter sawn boards. 12, 15, 18 inch wide quarter sawn boards are very, very common. Plus there's the whole plywood market. Ribbon sawn sapili plywood is very, very common. In fact, there's marine plywood um, made entirely out of sapili for that same purpose as well. So there's a huge market for it, and the tree is not even close to endangered. It's a pretty well-established forestry concession as well. Um, it's been around for a long time. When I talked earlier about how um, American walnut became so popular because Europe was used to the mahoganies, there are some people that contend that a lot of the golden age furniture sitting in museums right now is not actually made out of genuine mahogany, but actually made out of sapili or more importantly, utili. More, I should say not more importantly, but more commonly, utili. The Dutch East India Company was pulling hardwood out of Africa long before it started pulling hardwood out of North America. So there are some people that contend it's probably utili. Now you can't go and dissect a priceless work of art that's in the Louvre or the, you know, British Museum or the Smithsonian to find out if it's actually utility or genuine mahogany. No one cares that much to know, but shipping manifests and trade records show that utility and Sapili have been coming out of Africa for a very, very long time. So it's one of the other reasons American walnut became so popular because the European market was kind of like, eh, been there, done that when it comes to mahogany, even though it might've actually been utility, not mahogany. So let's talk about the genuine stuff now. Um, generically, we refer to it as South American mahogany. Technically, that's a bit of a misnomer in and of itself because there's a lot coming out of Central America. Guatemalan, Mexican, um, Belize uh, mahoganies are all Sweetina macrophylla, all the same species. So is the Brazilian stuff. So is the Bolivian stuff. Sure is the Uruguayan, um, uh, Paraguayan. It's all Sweetina macrophylla. But like African mahogany, when you've got such a huge geographic distribution, there are going to be differences. Um, Brazil is a good example. Brazil is a huge country. It spans from all the way up on the north side of South America, all the way down almost to the tip of South America. The northern climes are very mountainous. Um, Bolivia as well, very mountainous country, very high altitude. You've got a slower growing tree up there. Um, so the density, the growth rings are closer packed. There's much more of, of a homogenous structure that you'll find. You'll also find it's 
denser, darker red. Forgive my dog as he's going nuts over a UPS driver. Okay, now that the, uh, the UPS has made its delivery and the dog has stopped going nuts, let's continue this. So you can take some Brazilian mahogany, set it side by side, some from the south and some from the north, and you can actually tell the difference. The northern stuff will be a denser, darker red. The southern stuff will have more of a lighter orange color to it. Same thing could be said for African mahogany because of that widespread geographic distribution. Fortunately for genuine mahogany, for South American mahogany, there is a lot of rainfall. Brazil is pretty much rainforest throughout, whereas, you know, the Kaya distribution will have that more arid climate and tropical climate. Brazilian mahogany is pretty much all tropical. The northern stuff, just because it's more mountainous, it also can get a higher rainfall. It is just slower growing, greater density to the whole thing. The southern Brazilian stuff is still wonderful to work with, but it's not quite the same color and it's a little bit lower density. Some of it you can find will be more prone to tear out. It does have an interlocked grain, but mahogany really does to begin with anyway. You will find ribbon stripe mahogany showing up more commonly when you're talking about southern Brazilian mahogany. And countries south of Brazil like Paraguay and Uruguay are producing a similar type um, product in their mahogany as well. Bolivian mahogany has really long been kind of the gold standard of the South American mahoganies. Very dense, very consistent, deep red color, wonderful stuff to carve. But as I said at the beginning of this show, it's illegal. <laughs> the Bolivian government said, nah, screw you, CITES. You can say what you want. We're not going to pay attention to that. So they have not, it's not been legal to bring material out of Bolivia for quite some time. There is some old growth stuff that's been in the market for a while um, that you can still get if it's Bolivian, but it's never going to be marked as Bolivian. You will find that it almost has kind of a purple tinge to it. It's really dense, dark red stuff. Wonderful to work, but don't count on getting a whole lot of it. But it does illustrate the differences in geographic distribution and, and, and just soil chemistry that will cause mahogany to be different throughout its distribution. The Mazatlan stuff, the Belize stuff, um, also has some of its own character. And if you deal in genuine mahogany a lot, you can pick up a board and look at it or even work a board and pretty much start to figure out where it came from. And it's an interesting question to ask as you're buying genuine mahogany, find out from your dealer, hey, do you know where this came from? They may not know. It's highly possible they may not know, but they might, or they might know someone that may know. Like if any of our customers didn't know, but they called us, we could tell you where it came from, um, ideally. As long as things haven't been mixed up too much from the SKU number, we can pretty much tell you where the stuff came from. Because when we import it, we got to know. We got to know where it's coming from. And for that matter, when you buy and import genuine mahogany, you start to get a feel for, you know, we bought some from this region and eh, the customers liked it, but they didn't like it as much as the stuff we bought from this region. You start buying from certain concessions and you know where the good stuff's coming from. The key with the genuine mahoganies is call it Honduras mahogany, call it genuine mahogany, call it Central American or South American mahogany, call it Fijian mahogany. It's all Sweetina macrophylla. It's really one species. And that's what's always going to make genuine mahogany just a better wood to work with, a better wood to buy, because there's just less variables in play than there are with a conglomerate species like African mahogany. 
Sapili and Udili, although they are two species, they are very close cousins to one another, and you can feel good buying Sapili or Udili knowing that it is going to be that species. Those two haven't been confused in the market. Udili and Sapili are distinct species, and they're sold as distinct species. Sapili mahogany or Udili sepo. You're not going to get a container that's a mixture of both. Funny, though, the irony is, is you can almost mix them up. They are so similar that I would be okay if I got a container of mixed Udili and Sapili, and I don't think I would notice right away. Whereas the mixed container of African mahogany, it's a complete crapshoot on what you're going to get. There's the true irony there. General mahogany is going to be pretty much the same as Sapili and Udili. While you may find color differences, the workability of it is going to be pretty consistent throughout the region because of just the way the climates are, because of the rainfall amounts throughout its geographic distribution. You will run into some crappy genuine mahogany. And I know people who are like, I hate genuine mahogany. And they show you this piece they worked on and you look at it and go, oh my God, it's like the rowiest, nastiest, twisted grain thing you've ever seen. Like any species, you're going to find those outliers that, you know, grew on the side of a hill in a drought area or, you know, upwind of a volcano <laughs> or something like that. Or, you know, the, the, the um, uh, soil chemistry was so dramatically different on one side of the hill to the other that you're going to find this one tree is really weird. The other irony is, is oftentimes that's the most striking grain. Somebody saw this board and goes, man, look at the figure on that. Look at the ribbon stripe. Look at the, the cool chatoyancy of that board. Well, that also chatoyancy means it's harder to work, frankly. <laughs> I mean, it's gorgeous. It's got that three-dimensional look to it, but it's doing that because of switchbacking undulating ingrain throughout the board. It looks cool, but man, it's a royal pain in the butt to work with. So, you know, outliers will always be there within the same species. Don't write off the entire species. And the beauty of genuine mahogany is for the lion's share of it, you're going to find a homogenous grain structure, a relatively consistent hardness from early to late growth, and a good consistency of color. If you're having trouble color matching, it's because you're dealing with you know, a Southern Brazil versus Northern Brazil in the same species. And you may have to kind of dig through the stack a little bit more to get more color consistency, but you really shouldn't have to go that far because it will all darken. And that's the other thing, even the Southern Brazilian stuff that has a lower density than the Northern Brazil, it will darken to a nice homogenous color, both species. Well, I shouldn't say both species, the same species, both regions will kind of end up looking the same and finishes certainly help with that as well. So there's a lot, there's a lot to talk about here, folks, and I welcome your questions. Um, mahogany is so popular, and because of that, it's kind of a land grab. You know, let's grab some market share by calling this mahogany, and it may have absolutely nothing to do with mahogany on the taxonomic structure, but it is what it is. Mahogany is always going to be popular, so yeah, buyer beware, I should say, in the fact that make sure you know what you're getting, but don't be afraid to try it because the Sapili, Udili, and the Genuine Mahoganies are wonderful woods to work with. They're great exterior woods, great to carve, hold details really well, and oftentimes you can find great thickness, width, and length in all of them. So let me know if you have questions about mahogany. Let me know if you've had any run-ins with mahogany that made you hate it or like it or whatever, and uh, I'm open to those questions. Maybe take them in a future episode. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, as always, to my patrons. Um, please support the show, patreon.com slash lumberupdate. In the meantime, don't just buy some wood, folks. Go buy some mahogany. <laughs>